Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the Grath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. On today's program, we talk with Dr. Susan Reynolds, Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Emory University. An experienced teacher and parish minister, Dr. Reynolds is now closely following transformations in the U.S. Catholic Church in terms of ethnic makeup, geographic shifts, and migration. A graduate of the University of Notre Dame, as well as Boston College, Dr. Reynolds makes space in the halls of higher education for pressing issues in the life of the church. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lenny. So you used to be a middle school teacher in the border town of Brownsville, Texas, at a Catholic school. And your place of work now is a major research university, Emory, where you teach and research in Catholic studies. And yet I've noticed that the border hasn't left you. How are borderlands central to your work as a Catholic theologian? That's a great question, Lenny. So the work that I do revolves around racially and culturally and linguistically diverse Catholic parishes. Uh, and this was uh, an interest that, that began for me when I lived in Brownsville. Um, I taught in a school that was about one-third white Euro-American, um, probably a little more than a third Latino, and about a third Filipino. So it was this very fascinating tricultural, in some way trilingual school. I was the director of the children's choir there, actually. Oh, really? um, and at various points, all three of those uh, cultural traditions were incorporated into the liturgies that we would do every Friday as a, as a school. Um, and I became deeply fascinated with how in some way uh, there was a borderland quality, not only to the place that I lived, the broader place, but also the place that I taught and worshiped. This parish was in some way like a borderland. It was a, it was a place where multiple cultures and languages and, and, and generations and histories met and negotiated with one another. When I moved to Boston for graduate graduate school in theology, both my master's and my PhD, the first year that I was there, um, I lived in the rectory of a parish, mostly because I had no money, and this was a good opportunity to uh, have a place to live. And um, it was, it was, of course, it was Boston. And so um, a number of rectories uh, were without a priest in residence right. because of the priest shortage there. Um, and so I lived in a rectory in a, in a sort of an urban, uh, very under-resourced Catholic parish in, in the neighborhood of Roxbury. Um, and this parish, too, was in some way a borderland, not unlike the parish that I had left in Brownsville. Um, the English-speaking community was uh, both African-American, Afro-Caribbean, and white. And then there was a, a very large and growing, very dynamic Latino population as well, um, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican. And it was fascinating to me to watch the sort of interactions and negotiations and, and, and friendships and relationships and tensions sort of develop among parishioners. And I had this very fascinating view on that from the inside out. Yeah. Uh, and so that, in a sense, this, this metaphor, I guess you could say, of the borderland became sort of the optic through which I began to study multicultural and multiracial parishes. Very interesting. Now, I've heard you say at some point that in a lot of cases, like a multicultural parish is something of a misnomer, like we use it perhaps <laughs> too broadly. What, what do you mean by that when you've said that? That's exactly right. Um, I often use that terminology just because it's what most people recognize. Right, but in right. Fact, 
terming most terming most parishes multicultural is, is an overstatement. Uh-huh. Um, when we think of multiculturalism, um, what we think of is at least some sort of interaction um, or uh, you know integration across boundary lines. Um, in reality, most multicultural, quote-unquote multicultural parishes are really what scholars and, and actually in the USCCB term shared parishes. Uh-huh. Um, essentially one, two, you know, three, four uh, multiple cultural, ethnic, or linguistic communities essentially sharing space, but not much else, right? They sort of orbit around one another. We attend different masses, we participate in different ministries, we, you know, have different social circles, and in most cases, there are very few, if any, authentic relationships, you know, between those uh, those multiple cultural communities. Right. So, like, a sort of, like, coincident separation, like, separate uh, circles <laughs> that happen to be coexisting in the same place, but nothing that we would, or maybe nothing is a little too strong, but not the full sense of what we would want to call communion um, and, a, and a single community in that case. That's precisely right. And that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a question that is a, really an urgent one for me. And I think in some way for, for anyone who, who attends or belongs to or ministers in um, one, uh, one of these kinds of parishes, which are, as we know, about one third of Catholic parishes and, and rising today are a, are a shared parish or, a, a, you know, a so-called multicultural parish. And in parishes like these, right, in, in a sense, the most urgent question is, what do we mean by community? <laughs> Can we call this place a community in any meaningful sense? Sometimes you hear the language of um, a, a shared parish being a, a community of communities, okay. almost like a mini diocese unto itself, um, which is a fascinating model. And in a sense, I think it's an, it's an accurate one for describing what that kind of space is. But that still kind of begs the question, what do we mean by community in a larger sense? And what do we even really mean when we talk about parish life anymore, when you really just have these sort of separate spheres orbiting around each other, coexisting in this common space, but really sharing very little in the way of community life. Well, where do you see in the parish the possibilities of actually forming or building communion across these sort of, what I imagine are many times invisible lines of separation? Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. The space that I'm most interested in in my own work um, is the space of ritual and liturgical participation. Hmm. Now, of course, uh, as anyone listening who has ever attended a bilingual mass can certainly tell you, right, going to mass together and, you know, going to sharing <laughs> in a bilingual mass does not make us a community. In right. fact, usually people leave frustrated and a little angry. Often it's very stilted or, you know, it's, it's far from seamless, even in parishes that do this consistently. The parish that I went to, uh, that I belonged to in Boston, had bilingual masses all the time. And in fact, many parishes in Brownsville have bilingual masses pretty constantly because many people there are bilingual. And even in those places, um, you know, it's, it's far from a seamless process. And yet the liturgy does also offer us resources uh, for, for coming together as a community, for sort of living in to the community that we hope to become. Hmm. What is it that we do in liturgy, you think, that helps us to practice what we are not yet but want to become, as you're saying? Hmm. hmm. Um, I, I, in my work, I, I draw on um, particularly U.S. Latino scholars, who okay. um, scholars like Roberto Goizueta, who um, draw on this notion of, of liturgy as subjunctive. 
as subjunctive activity. Um, <laughs> that, that term might be confusing to those of us who are native English speakers. There's a subjunctive tense in English, but we don't often learn it as such. But those who have studied foreign languages might be familiar with the subjunctive tense. When we speak in the subjunctive, we're speaking in an as-if tense. So mm -hmm. we're talking about what we wish would happen, what we hope were the case so to speak. Um, and so when, when scholars refer to, to liturgy as subjunctive action, what they're saying is through liturgical participation, embodied participation, liturgy offers us in a sense sort of a, an embodied script for acting like the kind of community that we hope to one day become, right? When we share peace with each other, when we, you know, share in the, in the bread and wine together, when we Sing together, even if we do so awkwardly or 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 haltingly. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in in some way, we're invited. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not magic, right? Mm -hmm. But we're invited to sort of live into this community that we hope to someday become. We're, we're we're invited to to live into this body of Christ that we that we receive. Very good. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Susan Reynolds, Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Emory University. Now, in terms of kind of practicing or seeing what we hope to become, but maybe are not yet and are in the process of becoming, um, I've been caught by uh, what I've heard you name Pope Francis as, as a pastor of the mm -hmm. borders, uh, as someone mm -hmm. who calls us to make the peripheries, the centers of our liturgical imagination, of our pastoral attention. How have you seen him embody this or communicate this or urge this, this shift in the center? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so for, for Pope Francis, I really see this sort of commitment to the peripheries, to the borderlands in our midst as almost the thesis statement of his pontificate. Mm. We see this time and time again in his liturgical practice. We saw this in Lampedusa, for example, and we saw it again um, when he visited the U.S.-Mexico border from the Mexico side, um, from Juarez, in, um, in 2016. Um, while he was there during his papal visit to Mexico, um, he, he paused for prayer at a memorial that was constructed uh, in memory of the thousands of migrants who've lost their lives trying to reach the United States. And this memorial was constructed on this platform uh, that directly overlooked the international crossing between, between Juarez and, and El Paso, um, which is this uh, sort of, it's a fascinating space because it's both very, very militarized, and it's also very transnational. Actually, it's one of the um, the most frequently crossed borders, uh, points of any border, I think, in the world. Actually, right. I think about 14,000 people cross that border every single day, uh, quote unquote, legally for, you know, to visit family or go to school or whatever. Right. Um, but so it's this really kind of a, a, a fascinating space. Um, and this memorial uh, was was constructed out of iron, and it really sort of evoked this iron bars of the of the border fence in many places. And he just paused in this space for about two or three minutes. He he was in silent prayer, um, and, and in in some way it was this kind of subversive witness, this call for all of us in a way to to dwell in the borders, to dwell in the in between spaces, to not run from them. Um, but rather to to run toward them, right, in hopes for communion with with our near and distant neighbors. Um, after after he um, after he was there, he moved to celebrate mass mm -hmm. um, in Juarez, which was simulcast <laughs> across the border to a crowd that was gathered in in the Sun Bowl uh, in El Paso, and a lot more people, many more gathered along both sides of the border fence on either side of the Rio Grande. 
um, to sort of participate in solidarity. Um, and when it came time for the, the Eucharist, um, communion was distributed on both sides of the border simultaneously, both in uh, in the stadiums and also um, to the people that were gathered along the fence. Um, and the images from that day were, um, you know, I, I, they 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 give me pause whenever I look at photos um, of, of communion being distributed along the border, because it really, in a sense, it's, it's, it's an act of, of liturgical truth telling in a sense, mm. it's sort of a statement of, of the unity of the body of Christ that refuses to be divided by these imposed borders and by, and by the, the more insidious borders of, of fear and suspicion that many of us hold in our hearts. Liturgical truth telling is such a, that's such a powerful phrase and, the image that you're kind of painting for us of what actually happened. So there's one altar and one sacrifice at the mass in one place, I'm taking it. And the distribution, the sharing of the body of Christ went across the two borders. Is that right? Precisely. Wow. Precisely. And the previous yeah. image yeah. that you're calling our attention attention to of him, the Pope, staying, just pausing and remaining in a space that's in between. And you mm-hmm. drawing our attention mm-hmm. to that to say that's – you think that's an it's an intentional move it's a it's a prophetic move to say don't f- run from one place to another don't scurry away from the place that's difficult actually remain in the place in between this is where communion and prayer is at home um, that's exactly right and, and and it's so relevant to our to our own practice in our parishes right because many people um I, I hear all the time because of the work that I do from people in parishes all over the country who are, you know, struggling as, as we all are to, to uh, try and build a community, um, deep, authentic community in uh, shared multicultural parishes. Um, and they've tried this and they've tried that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's been awkward, it's been uncomfortable. They say, well, the, you know, the, the Spanish speakers don't want to participate, or they say, well, we feel marginalized, or whatever. You know, there's all these tensions there. And, and the easiest thing to do is just to kind of give up, right? It's yeah. so much easier just to exist in our own spaces. Um, and, and I should say, too, that those culturally specific spaces in parishes are very important, right? The goal isn't just to make every mass a bilingual mass and to make everybody else, to make everybody feel a little bit culturally <laughs> homeless all the time, right? No one wants that. And, and we know for, for um, you know, for, for immigrant communities in particular, but also, you know, subsequent generation communities, having spaces of sort of religio-cultural empowerment and memory is vitally important and has been really for the past several hundred years of Catholicism in the United States. Right. Um, so that's, uh, those those culturally specific spaces are not bad, right? So we're not saying the coexistence of these these spheres, so to speak, um, is a is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is bad, right, is when those those differences calcify into divisions, these sort of unbreachable hidden walls in our parish that it's just so much easier to run away from than to ever dare cross. Mm. Wonderfully said. You're listening to the Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. Again, we're talking with Dr. Susan Reynolds, Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Emory University. So these borderlands uh, are out there invisible, and we see them, and they're much on the news, and uh, much at home in your work. They're they're right in our parishes, too. Um, and mm-hmm. pointing to the work of the liturgy, the practice of ritual, the... 
uh, beauty of sacramental life as the possibility of not doing away with culturally specific spaces, but actually forging communion among difference. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Some something else that has drawn that's caught my attention in what you've uh, written about and talked about um, is in terms of the evangelization in the U.S. Church that Latinos, Latino Catholics, are. Uh, spearheading or really bringing forward. And you're also very careful to point out there's no such thing as one Latino experience. It's not a monolith. But all the same, broadly speaking, um, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the the things you've seen, some of these ways in which this leadership and evangelization is emerging among the Latino community. Sure, absolutely. Um, And it's important to foreground this conversation by noting, um, as perhaps many of our listeners have have heard, um, is this is a um, a, a, a thing that started to get a, quite a lot of press, which is a good thing. Um, but the recognition that uh, today in the Catholic Church in the United States, about 40% of Catholics are Latino. Mm-hmm. And for those um, under around age 40, so like old millennials and younger, more than 50% of Catholics right. are Latino. Um, and that means that uh, for those who are who are Catholic school teachers, who are youth ministers, who work with children, um, most, the majority of, of Catholic children in the United States today are Latino. So the, the so-called face of the church in the U.S. is really uh, changing in, in, a, in a very profound way. Um, I think for a long time, we looked at the Latino population in uh, the U.S. Catholic Church and thought, okay, we need to evangelize them. We need to catechize them. It's sort of this one-way process. Um, what I'm heartened to see uh, scholars and, and pastoral theologians and parish workers and other people uh, beginning to recognize is that in some ways, and in fact very profound ways, um, it's Latino Catholics who are in a sense evangelizing the U.S. Church, revitalizing the United States Church, um, or the Church in the United States. Um, and I can in- think of at least three ways in which that's the case. Um, the first is sort of this intergenerational approach to ministry. Um, among uh, sort of U.S. Hispanic, U.S. Latino models of ministry, um, what we find is that there's a much more sort of organic sense of intergenerationality. Um, it's it's interesting, uh, difficult, but also interesting, um, trying to have conversations uh, that are sort of multicultural in nature about something like youth ministry, mm-hmm. um, because uh, for uh, U.S. Latino communities, uh, what we call youth and young adult ministry is actually this very broad, comprehensive ministry that encompasses people from like young teenagers all the way until 30-something. And in fact, uh, for those of your listeners who have been to World Youth Day, right. they likely have been struck by how young the U.S. <laughs> groups look. Yes. Uh, and that's because they, they are. The groups from Europe, the groups from Latin America and elsewhere, um, all are a lot older. They're Often they send groups who are like 20-somethings. Um, that's because even the word youth in, in Spanish, and I think also in French and other places too, um, sort of translates to a slightly older demographic. Right. Um, so it's sort of an interesting aside. Um, but in any case, um, you know, and, and of course, when families are, um, you know, have different immigration experiences, when you have a first-generation uh, you know, group of parents with a second generation group of children, for example, there's a, you know, there's a lot of difference and a lot of tension there. So this is certainly, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's some sort of ideal model here, but in general, 
you know, ministry models of ministry in in Hispanic ministry are much more sort of organically intergenerational mm. than than you find. Um, you know, among, uh, you know, typical kind of U.S. models of ministry, which are very compartmentalized, right? right? We have our children's ministry, young adult ministry, middle school ministry, high school ministry, this, that, that. And they're all kind of in their separate spheres. And maybe there's like a parent night, you yeah. know, but even then, I think, you know, I was in youth group for four years in high school and my mom knew what we were doing like never, you know, it was very, <laughs> it was very, very siloed. Um, and so I think one thing that, that U.S. Latinos call out of the, the church broadly in the United States is to think about ways that can be more organic, more intergenerational in our ministry. Um, Which seems uh, like it has a lot more possibility for kind of, I was just going to say, it seems like it has a lot more possibility there for like sustained accompaniment. If you're not graduating from youth so early um, and you're still being recognized as a young person for a longer period of time with, you know, some older young people who are, who are guiding the way, it does just strike me that there's more potential for accompaniment. Oh, absolutely. And sort of these mentorship networks, right? Of course, we always talk about mentorship or leadership formation in the church, and it's it's hard to kind of impose something from the outside. But if these relationships are developing organically through our models of ministry, you know, then that's there's really a lot of potential there. Mm. Um, very good. Now, that's one way in which the, the Latino community is offering leadership, um, Latino Catholics, in terms of broadening the sense of what young youth is. Um, are there, mm-hmm. Is there another way or mm-hmm. another couple ways that you mentioned? Yeah, and another way I'll mention um, uh, is uh, sort of the, again, very, very broadly speaking, um, sort of U.S. Latino uh, theological aesthetics, I guess you could say. Um, there's a real recognition within U.S. Latino theology, among U.S. Latino Catholics, broadly speaking, of what we might call the, the sort of the evangelizing capacity of beauty, mm. right? And the Guadalupin tradition is, um, is, a, is a really beautiful sort of emblem of that. Um, for those who are familiar with the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, right, it's uh, the story, you know, behind Juan Diego, behind Guadalupe, is this, this aesthetically charged, really beautiful, really fascinating story um, of, of, you know, this, this apparition, you know, and this empowerment to this indigenous man and uh, sort of a, a reversal of, of typical power relations. And there's, you know, that's a fascinating and beautiful story. But just as fascinating and beautiful is the image Right, is the image of right. Guadalupe herself. And there's a reason that, you know, in Latino communities, both in, in Latin America and in the United States, you see her image everywhere, right, on the side of buildings and in the back of cars, you know, and tattooed on arms. It's a, it's a stunning, she's a, a stunning, stunning image. Um, and I, it, you know, I, I think we see this in the sort of the aesthetic tradition in, in U.S. Latino theology uh, more broadly, right? If you've ever been into a in a church in a in a Latino community, often the the images of the saints of Jesus of the crucifix there are very very uh, graphic, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's a there's an aesthetic charge uh, participating in in the way of the cross, for example, in um, in the parish. Uh, in Boston, where I lived, uh, which was primarily led by the Latino community, was this, you know, this very, very powerful, very sensory experience through the streets of the neighborhood, um, not just within the church. So it was this public witness of, of beauty, in a sense, uh, and it was very subversive. Uh, so I think uh, particularly, in, again, in, in sort of a, a U.S. frame, as we uh, I think one of the challenges is, uh, particularly in youth ministry, mm-hmm. 
you know, wait, <laughs> uh, there's, um, how would I say this? Often there, there's a desire to sort of draw on the emotions yeah, of oh, yeah. students, of young people. That's a very gentle way of, uh, of putting it. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll say that. We'll uh-huh. say, uh, you know, draw, draw out the emotional experience of the faith. Um, but there's there's not sort of a, a concomitant, robust commitment to like uh, any deep theological aesthetics. Mm. Uh, so I, you know, thinking about ways that we can incorporate experiences of of, of theologically robust and authentic beauty, um, I think is is another lesson that the U.S. Church broadly can learn from its forty percent of Latino Catholics. And the other thing that I'll say too is. Um, Catholics should really have their, their eyes and their ears open, um, because this fall, the fifth Encuentro is going to be held. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a massive gathering of Latino Catholics from all over the United States, um, essentially, uh, you know, forming networks, naming their experience, evangelizing one another, sharing the faith, and articulating priorities for Hispanic ministry going into the future. This is the fifth time it's been held, and out of each one of these have come very specific recommendations for um, what, essentially, what Latinos need um, mm-hmm. in the United States, from the United States Church, and what they can contribute, um, which is, which is uh, you know, a, a very, very important. Um, and regional gatherings have been held throughout the year, actually, in um in areas all over the United States, uh, this has been a highly participatory process, um, and one that in some ways serves as a model for the entire church. But it's um, Catholics should really, really have their eyes open on this gathering, um, because this is going to be, in a sense, again, the 40% of Latino Catholics in the United States uh, naming their experience, uh, naming their needs, naming their priorities. I'm so glad that you said this is something of a model because I was going to make the same the same comment there at the end as you were talking about mm-hmm. that a way of reflection, a way of listening, a way of sharing experience, but also looking forward in hope and and naming where we hope to go um, and mm-hmm. beginning the practices that will bring us into the reality we hope to see, as you were saying much earlier on, about liturgical practice. Well, there's certainly Perfect. a lot more that we could talk about, and uh, maybe I'll just put you on the spot here and say, we'll have to have you back. And so I hope you'll come and share some more with us because I feel like we've got a lot more that we could get to. But we've come to the end of our time. And so uh, we want to thank you, Dr. Susan Reynolds, for joining us today on Church Life Today. And thanks to everybody else for being with us. We hope you'll join us again next time.